And good morning. You are listening to Zena Richardson and Scotty Foster on Behind the Lines, 2XX and uh, 98.3 FM. That was Alicia Keys with Girl on Fire. And we have two girls on fire in the studio with us today with great ideas. Uh, so... As part of our Australian Capital Territory General Election 2020, Behind the Lines is hosting a series of interviews featuring party candidates to discuss their policies and platforms with a theme for conversation of motivations and vision. Anais Nin said, we don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. So how do we encourage community to achieve consensus in order to bring about a much needed change? In other words, what motivates us enough to embrace a collective vision above our personal biases? These themes are something which this morning's guests have thought about quite deeply. So please join us in welcoming in studio Bethany Williams, candidate for Yerribee, and Peter Swarbrick, candidate for Currajong from the Canberra Progressives. Welcome to the show, Bethany and Peter. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Zena. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, lovely to have you here. So... Those of us who've been listening to the show quite regularly know that we've been really um, wanting to connect with our candidates as people, not just as politicians, and getting to know you from a, a human perspective rather than just from platforms and policies. So a first question I'm going to ask you, have either of you filled out a, a CAPAD statement, Canberra Alliance of Participatory Democracy? Absolutely. I was one of the first. Yeah, I think oh. I was the second. There you go. <laughs> tick and tick. <laughs> Any opportunity to get our yeah. brands out there. Well, well, also because, you know, the CAPAD being um, about participative democracy um, is a really important resource for people to see, not just, you know, the core flutes and the ads and all of the big kind of party political stuff, but to actually hear from the minor parties and the independents. And it's a really fantastic way of trying to engage more political activity just in the population generally. Yeah. And I think the community feels a bit disconnected from the process. You know, there's that there's a whole movement now to get people really back involved mm. in mm. having a community voice. Oh, mm. definitely. Well, the, the politics affects every day, our everyday lives. And I think a lot of people become disengaged because they see a lot of negativity in, in government. But um, that we need to um, help people engage by mm. letting them know how uh, much the decisions that are made in government affect their everyday lives. Mm. So uh, especially the young people of today, mm. it's, it's, it's great to see so many engage, but I think we need to get more, more mm. and more young people engaged because um, decisions that are being made now are going to affect their futures more than anybody's. Mm. Well, I think with you know sort of major events, sort of what's happening in the US with COVID, um, I see quite a lot more political engagement, but it's in the form of advocacy or activism or people forming groups online. Um, and I think there's the problem is that disconnect because sort of, you know, politics as usual has become branded. Um, it feels like something that you can't change or that you can't participate in or that's hard to get into. It feels fixed, whereas there's an awful lot of actual political activity. If people think about how often they'll have a conversation at work or at a barbecue about what's going on with the climate. That's even political. Black, even the protests, yeah, Black Lives Matter and climate change. I mean, yeah. young people, that, that that's them getting involved politically mm -hmm. as yeah. well. So they, there's definitely a desire, isn't there? There's a but desire it's, there. It's, I think it's showing them that that's, because that is politics, that they can um, sort of reach into that disconnect mm. and change it mm. and become the people who who make the decisions. Yeah. And I think that's where the minor parties are so important yeah. because it gives people an alternative. Mm. Absolutely. And that's why we really wanted 
to give the minor parties a platform because we know that you. the big the big two <laughs> slash three get a lot of exposure. Yeah. Yes. You guys don't always get that voice out in the community. Yep. So Bethany, you know, here you are being a fine example of what you've just described. You were only bitten by the political bug quite recently. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So it was about 18 months ago I got bitten by the political bug. That's when I wanted to decided mm. I wanted to try it and stand for government. Um, before that, I've always had a really strong interest in politics in general. I studied it at uni and I've always been interested in the machinery of government, but I never thought that me as just a mum from Canberra or, um, you know, a, a woman could, um, with with a public school background and nothing special about me, I didn't think that I would be someone that could become a, a politician. But as I've gotten older and I've gotten more frustrated with the state of politics in Australia, I've, I've well, there's a saying that says, don't get mad, get elected. And my moment was about um, 18, was about 18 months ago, but when Sarah Hansen-Young was slut-shamed by David Leyenhelm in, in the Senate, that was the moment I decided that we needed to have more women mm-hmm. in government and that I would be the one to put my hand up because I will not take that from anybody. Mm. It's unacceptable. So yeah, that was that was my motivation, but it's not the only motivation I have for getting into government. Yeah. The tipping point. Yes. The tipping point. Well, I think yes. it was Vita Goldstein who was our first Australian female politician, and um, the US and the UK were inviting her over as um, a guest speaker because they were so impressed that she'd managed to get herself into politics. But then it took another forty years for us mm. actually to get a woman in the Senate. So we've yeah. come a long way since then. Hopefully. We've come a long way but we've still got a long way to go there's not an, not enough gender diversity or diversity in general in, in mm. our parliaments and unfortunately um in the last 10 years australia has slipped down the oecd mm. equal equality um mm. ladder mm. to something like 41st mm. and it's actually you know it's an indictment um on a lot of the rolling back of some fantastic reforms that happened in the 80s and the 90s so gough whitlam and then um bob hawke mm-hmm. taking up you know instituting the office of women actually instituting gendered budgeting um tony abbott actually legislated that out. Uh, it used to be a mandated activity around budgeting. You had to apply a gendered lens. So it's not surprising that things have gone downhill since 2014 because women are no longer represented in the budget and it's one of the most effective policy tools. So, yes, there's steps forward, but the, unfortunately we're always fighting steps backward when it comes to equality and not just for women. Beth and I are really very passionate about intersectionality. We can't talk for other groups because we are very white, (laughs) middle-class women. But, you know, we understand that participative democracy is only strengthened by having as many diverse voices and, you know, and faces and life experiences at the table. So that's all, you know, it's not just about women. It's actually about breaking that mould and then hopefully a floodgate of people who get to sit at the table and make decisions that affect their lives because, you know, it affects our lives differently. Women have a different experience. Culturally and linguistically diverse people, different experience. First Nations, different experience. Disability, different experience. And until those people are at the decision-making table, you know, they're constantly um, receiving, you know, policy that might not suit them. And they're receiving policy Mm. by usually white older men Mm. who make policy for everybody Mm. and um, as we know it doesn't fit, it's not fit for purpose. It only only fits them, right? Yeah, Yeah. Maintaining the status quo. It's not good for the community because it costs money. Mm. When you have to retrofit faulty Mm. policy, you have to 
bolt-on bits to fix up mistakes. Everyone knows that a dollar spent in prevention will save five dollars mm-hmm. in cure. Now that's exactly the same for social issues um, as it is for sort of you know like a return on investment is as important in the social sort of milieu as it is in an economic one. So it just makes sense. Get the right voices, make the right decisions, and it's good for everybody, even the middle-class, middle-aged white guys. But also, you know, one of the things you just talked about, there was the importance of lived experience, right? You know, people with lived experience, making decisions about their lived experience. So, you know, I know in your bio here, Peter, you've actually gone through quite a lot of the things that um, people who themselves have experienced that feel politicians are disconnected from, you know, like you've struggled to stay employed at different times in your life. You've raised kids, you've moved around a lot. You know, you've, you've been on a, a, a place where you've been challenged in your own life and you're going to hopefully now represent people from that compassionate, empathetic understanding. Oh, look, absolutely. Mm. I mean, I've been through a situation um, where, uh, you know, work issues, um, sort of being fired, uh, I've had you know, I've been, I've, I've worked on my mental health, mm. uh, I've moved, mm. I've come to a different city, I've been dislocated. Mm. And whilst, you know, there's lots of, I still have a, a huge ton of privilege and I'm never going to pretend otherwise. And that's one of the things that I feel really strongly about why someone like me, who is actually um, in possession of a, a large amount of privilege, to be able to um, actually use that privilege to help other people, that's very important to me. I suppose my sort of political um radicalisation. Uh, I was president of Canberra Women in Business for a number of years um, and that was, you know, fabulous, met some amazing women and there was a point at which there was um, some... uh, Something had happened with Gia Con, who at that stage were being fairly flagrant about some very sexualised advertising. Uh, they were going to have an International Women's Day event, which seemed like an absolute slap in the face to women. Um, it was about selling property. And I don't have a problem with them selling property, but let's not co-opt, um, you know, sort of addressing disadvantage of women and pretend that that's what it was about. So I was very interested in going to a protest and it was there was a a number of people be organising at a unions. Um, there was a union representation, um, LGBTQI representation. And as sort of, you know, a community leader at that stage in the business community, I felt it was really important for women, um, you know, who run businesses in this town to also have mm-hmm. their voice. We'd had a number of posts. There was a massive uh, engagement. Lots of people very angry, not just about Geocon's kind of sort of complete disregard for anybody's sort of feelings and the damage that those sorts of images do because it's proven but also the fact that a couple of people had taken it to the advertising standards board poo 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 it's just gym wear it's not sexualized and it blatantly is anyway so at that, and that point, has what to do with selling apartments well Women exactly bikes, exactly really sure. you know and i mean they'd already done it in woden once and there was a huge uproar and you know what they clearly felt that any publicity was good publicity. So they did it again in the middle of the city, a massive hoarding. Um, And, you know, it was sexualised images of young women. And we know that that kind of image sends a message that actually 
you know, disrespect is the, the first rung on the ladder of rape culture. Mm-hmm. And people flinch when I talk about that stuff and I'm, I'm not going to stop talking about it because disrespect is what leads to harassment, abuse and worse. I've been at the receiving end of some of the abuse harassment um, and I know that, you know, if, if our society walks past, what the, the standard you walk past, the standard you accept um, is, you know, it has a huge impact on young people uh, as well as sort of, you know, people who are looking for an excuse. So I was quite surprised um, that, you know, in this business community there was a real reticence, a real fear that as women, if we put our hands up politically, that we popped above the barricades and said, you know what, this isn't good enough, I'm sorry, you know, fellow business organisation, you need to do things better, that there would be this backlash. I was really quite taken aback. That was the point at which I realised that I didn't want to stop at saying something, doing a Facebook post, talking about it with my friends. Um, I thought, this is just ridiculous. Um you know, I need to go further. I want to make sure that we put things into place to see this doesn't happen again. And I want to know why this single company like Geocon is allowed this leeway. Why is it that, you know, all of a sudden I used to see ad, uh, I used to see articles in the Canberra Times about the fact that, you know, they have had some industrial issues. They've had other issues around sexism, um, having, you know, topless dancers at topping out parties, things like that. Now, the Canberra Times used to put them under the microscope. Next thing I see, there's glamorous advertorials of their envy parties with women wearing gold paint. And I'm like, what's going on here? Something's changed. And I realised that sort of, you know, standing there with a placard and trying to get my sort of sisters to come along with me wasn't going to work. I actually had to out myself as political because political is the only way that change is going to happen. Um, And Lysia Heath, who... um, has started Women for Election. So she was a very high-flying corporate um, assets manager, you know, sort of um, a money manager, and she decided that um, she wanted to change the social fabric of politics and uh, she'd actually ran as a candidate in the city in the seat of Wentworth. Uh, and she said a really interesting thing on the podcast the other day that anybody that thinks that not engaging in the, pol- in, you know, in politics for good or bad, whatever it is, whatever the system that you have available to you, anyone that thinks that they're going to affect change unless they walk into that arena is just having themselves on. So whilst, you know, I'm a big fan of advocates and activists, until we actually have these voices engaged in the political debate, not around the edges, not at the periphery, change won't happen. We'll have some great conversations, but we'll never actually, you know, take it from the what we want to see um, to the actual, you know, change affected and, and being sort of um, experienced in the community. So, yeah, I'd, I'd probably like Beth had been very political, friends probably not that keen on how political, uh, and then decided, okay, it's time. It's time to actually come out as a, as a politician. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and think, here I am. I think George Monbiot <clears throat> talks about uh, if you can get 30% of a population openly expressing a view, then everybody else thinks that most people are doing it and they'll 
pretend or think that even if they don't. Oh, that's right. Look, you know, human beings, <clears throat> we've evolved at what has protected us. Um, you know, we don't have sort of scales and horns and, and fangs. What's protected us is that ability to create form groups. So forming groups is our most sort of natural thing. And if we see enough of a group form, we just assume that that's the safe place to be. Um, and, you know, it is hard to break through that. But um, people like Beth and I are... are here because we don't think that the groups that have formed are, are good enough, they don't represent enough lived experience and we want to do something about that. But what's really um, um, positive and, and sort of gives me a bit of hope is in the ACT we've got the highest um, registration of eligible voters. We've got 99.5% uh, which is the national mm. benchmark. Mm. So that's really exciting because it shows that the ACT are the most politically engaged people in Australia. Mm -hmm. So this this is really great for our democracy in the ACT. Mm. Um, and, yeah, it, it, it does mean that we've got a lot more people mm. who will vote for, hopefully, other people who will mm. represent <coughs> more diverse interests. I think in the past it has always been sort of a really a two-horse race with a... With, with a slower horse at the back, with the, with the two majors and the greens. And, you know, and, and that that's fine, but it's time... It, we, we need to get more diversity into government because diversity... Uh, having a diverse crossbench will give us a better democracy and better decision-making all around. So that's what the intention is with the minor parties, and there are a lot of good ones. This election, I mean, obviously the Canberra progressives are the best. Absolutely <laughs> yeah. the best. So we should get everyone's first preferences. Yeah. But, um, you know, there are a lot of good minor parties and independents around this election, and by voting for them, it's going to um, give... Um, the community a voice, more of a voice in the government mm. and more of a say in, in, in how things are done. And, you know, perhaps we could talk a little bit about who the Canberra progressives are. I mean, I was reading your website and since we talk about motivations, I saw some really key strong words that you've got ethics, evidence and empowerment. Yeah, aren't so they great? Yeah, really, really catchy there. So could you tell us a little bit about who the Canberra progressives are? Um, are they related to the Australian progressives and how yeah. they formed and help people get to know your party. So the Canberra Progressives are a sub-branch of the Australian Progressives Party, which has been around for about six years. Um, in the... Australian Progressives had two candidates mm. at the last election, um, Robert Knight and Therese Faulkner. And... This so is that's the, the federal election? That's the federal election, yeah. yeah. So this is the first time anywhere in Australia we've had representatives running at the, at the state or territory level. Um, and we're really excited about it. So while we're a sub-branch, we're sort of... We, we have we have very similar policies, but the Canberra progressives, obviously, are much more focused on the Canberra, elect, Cam, Canberra mm -hmm. region. So that is our priority. Um, we're just a bunch of people from the community who have... We're all very um, politically engaged and we've all... We're all a bit fed up with the status quo. Um, we all feel that there needs to be more evidence in decision-making, more ethics in decision-making and more empowerment for the community. So the Canberra Progressives are really about community engagement. We want to make sure that the um, when people oppose something or if there's a new development, that, that the engagement's not just a tick uh, where they speak to a few people and then proceed to ignore them. We want to make sure that um, the voices of the community are heard. And so that's where um, we pride ourselves on being more, uh, I think Robert calls it a communitarian style party, um, where we will not, we, we, we do not um, have any, take any donations from corporations. 
um, we all of our donations, if we get any, are all from friends, family, mm-hmm. and, and that sort of thing. So we don't have any vested interests that we have to appease, um, and we don't have a. Our, our policies are all very progressive, but we're all also able to advocate for issues that are um, um, particular to our individual electorates. So that means we're, we're more of an independent in that sense that we, could, we, we speak for our electorates and we won't have... We, our voices, if we get elected, our voices will be much stronger in the Legislative Assembly because we won't be drowned out by all the voices in the party of, of our party where we have to toe the line and do what the party says, even if it even if it's something we don't really agree with. Mm-hmm. So within our party, we have robust discussions about different things. We don't always agree on everything. That's okay. Because the primary um, focus is that we're a values-based party. As long as we all have really strong ethical values, that is most important. Mm. And it's interesting that the Australian progressives actually started pretty much in response to Tony Abbott, thanks, Mr Abbott. Um, And it was that kind of like... A grassroots groundswell, um, but at the same time realising that it needed to be a well-organised party. There's a lot of smart people in the progressives, um, you know, that we have over 70 platforms and that's just Canberra progressives. So, you know, there's lots of good brains. They're just regular people like Beth and I, but they've thought about things long and hard. And so we have that advantage of being able to springboard as the Canberra progressives off the work that the Australian progressives did um, in the, the federal election in in 2016 and look I suppose in some ways the Canberra progressives are the first cab off the rank because we are we've formed as a a form of dissent Um, Andrew Barr has been in the Labor Party as a staffer Mm -hmm. as as a a part of the party machine as an apparatchik Mm -hmm. um, for over 20 years probably closer to 25 sorry Andrew (laughs) and Shane Rattenbury very hard-working man. He was up, you know, in Parliament House as an activist at, from the age of 18. And, yes, he's been on the Rainbow Warrior, but the rest of the time he's been in that green machine. Same thing with Alistair Coe. Um, I'm a real estate agent. Uh, one of the, the, my first weeks in, in real estate, Alistair Coe was my client. He popped up needing to buy an apartment because he was moving out of his mum and dad's house. So I've known Alistair Coe for, you know, over 15 years and he hasn't done anything else. Now, if I looked at, at a 30-year-old CV or a 35-year-old CV, 40-year-old CV, and they'd been in the same job for 20 years, I'd be like, What's up? Um, <laughs> times changed. Well, that's right. That's right. And so, you know, this is the it's the complacency comes from this increasingly rusted on nature. Now, whilst you know um, we've got a Labor government that's been in government all this time, they you know the the duopoly ends up they end up looking like each other. So you've got Andrew Barr always accused of, you know, red wine lunches with developers. We've got Alistair Coe talking about trees and poverty commissions. And it's just a sort of a strange sort of um, milieu and nobody believes them. And this is one of the things I think that really the Australian progressives is about. It's about trust because we, we don't have vested interests. We don't have an agenda except for the fact that we think that our political systems need to be used better. Uh, and so that's really what the Canberra Progressives is about, a bunch of people who are prepared to put all the effort and deal with all the things that come with being political, um, but also saying, you know what, like we've all had this conversation to one degree or another, you know, someone's got to do something. Yeah, someone's got to do something. Someone's got to do something. And guess what? 
we're someone. We're someone. Yeah. We could do something. <laughs> yeah. And so it, it really is about just kind of taking a deep breath and taking the plunge um, and, and seeing. Because at the end of the day, look, if what we're saying doesn't resonate with people, um, they'll let us know. And maybe it's just the beginning. It does take a few goes. We have to address the sense of entitlement too yeah. that a lot of these people have. Um, you know, I don't want to disparage anyone, but when you've been in a job for so long, you do have a sense of entitlement to that job. And but it's also an echo chamber, isn't it? I mean, yeah. you, there's a certain amount of, you know, if, if there's no new windows in the building, how do you expect to see out of it? You know, you don't see the horizon anymore. You're so focused on, on your own We're room. working really hard to – all the candidates for the Canberra Progressives, we are working really hard in the communities to, to talk to people and, and get the feel for the lay of the land and so that we can be better advocates for the people of Canberra mm. in the Legislative mm. Assembly. And the great thing is, is that um, – in the past, uh, my perception as a member of the community has been that minor parties usually a bit wacky. They're a bit mm-hmm. extreme, a bit to the right or too far to the left. And the great thing about the Canberra progressives is we are very, I, I don't, to use a um, very common phrase, the sensible centre. Mm-hmm. So we probably lean more left than we do centre-right. But our views are just logical. It's based on common sense. It's based on evidence and facts. And we will always make decisions with evidence at hand. Mm-hmm. And, and we... And Someone asked me the other day, what's the difference between the Greens and the Canberra Progressives? And the the, the fundamental difference is ideology. The Canberra Progressives don't have an ideology. As I said, facts, evidence, that that is, if you want, maybe that's our ideology. But the Greens have an ideology, which is fantastic, which is great. But if it came down to a, a, a decision that where the facts and evidence said it should be made one way, but the ide- ideology said it would be made another way, Parties like the Liberals, Labor and Greens, they will go with ideology every time. And so this is where the Canberra progressives are fundamentally mm. different to the other major parties is, is we won't have an ideology that we're clung- so stuck So this, this is a really interesting thing that I was going to bring up as well. So you're, you, I mean, you, you'll get this all the time. So you're called the progressives. Now, if you don't really have an ideology... Where is it that you're progressing to? I mean, the logical like progressive is quite a quite broad. a uh, yeah, yeah, it's a broad term. It could <laughs> mean absolutely question. anything. But you know, the old saying uh, if you uh, if you don't know where you're going, any road will well, take look, you there. So, where is it that you're yeah. progressing to as a party? Look the, what we're progressing to is a better world, a better community. So what that means to us is something where um, people aren't don't fa- have discrimination, people don't have poverty or disadvantage, that we look after our own people, that we look to the future of what's the best for everybody and not just a, a, an entitled or elite few. Um, we don't look after just one section of the community. So we're not, you know, for example, we're not just for unions or we're not just for religious people. Etc. And we look out for everybody. Even if you, if even if you're on the right, we'll look out for you because it's about what is best for the community. So where we're progressing to is just a better world where people have access to, you know, housing, uh, affordable housing, where people have access to community services, where people can um, have jobs, etc. Um, we want to make sure that people that you know we we continue to work towards fighting climate change. Uh, we want to end corruption. Um, uh, in, in government and in, in um, the p- private sector. So they're, they're the aspirations that we have and that we'll always work to. So, um, Peter, if you want to... Yeah, um, well, look, I think, 
as far as an ideology goes, the reason we sort of say that, I suppose, what we really mean and what ideology has become, given that, you know, you've got a, a liberal um, opposition leader touting trees and poverty and, you know, a, a Labor um, leader who is very wedded to private enterprise. What we're really talking about, I suppose, is factionalism. So Beth alluded to it before. If, if I was elected as and standing as a Progressives member, a Progressives um, representative, uh, MLA, yes, I would have to go and discuss anything I was going to vote on with the membership. The membership would vote. But at the end of the day, I have full capacity to make a vote based on what I think is the ethical decision, even if everybody else disagreed. I'd be It would be a pretty strange situation because surely there would be some evidence. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, I don't have that. Um, uh, the difference, Beth and I have talked about this before, the best way to sum up our ideology is purpose before self. So what we've seen politics become is just getting yourself elected, keeping yourself in the seat, staying in your position of power. Now, that's a very hard thing to do at the same time as, you know, accepting and embracing change and creating change in your community. If your focus from the minute you're elected is to get elected again, because it's going to come around in four years, you've got this non-change, you've got an incumbency mindset. With the progressives, um, you know, we all come, we've all got careers, jobs, whatever. We might come into this, we might participate, we might get elected, and we might only be in for one term. Um, and we're okay with that because we've got our lives to get back to. We're not going to be 25-year you know, career politicians, because we don't think that's good. Because if you get yourself into a stasis like that, you get locked in. It's very difficult to have it to to develop different ways of thinking, to open your mind to, to divergent views. So as far as that ideology goes, it's about purpose. Now, if we're no longer serving the purpose of the progressives, then we'll get off the bus. Um, we actually don't want to make it about ourselves. You know, Bethany mm-hmm. Williams, the politician, Peter Swarbrick, the politician. Sadly, we have to we have to do that temporarily while we're sure. trying to get elected. Well, you know, <laughs> for people who've never heard of us, but. But the yeah. point is, is that if we if we actually pass all of our decision making through that prism, is it for myself or is it for the purpose? That is where we're going. So that kind of gives us that pathway. What is the purpose? If it's diversity, if it's inclusion, if it's justice, if it's equity, if it's access, what's the purpose? And am, am I putting myself before the purpose? And if I am, then I need to remove. And I suppose that's what we're seeing with rusted on politicians is it becomes much clearer to the community that there's that self my party, my position, my power. And and they've, they've got stuck there. And the, the most common comment we hear, they've been there too long. And politicians, I think, f- f- tend to forget that they work for the public. They're there to serve the public. And what we want to do is bring that purpose back to the public. And so that's what we're trying to do. And it sounds like to you, when you talk about being progressive, you're progressing back to the community having a voice in politics again yeah like this is i would say that most people feel very jaded about the fact that the the leaders that keep getting re-elected make a lot of promises that Mm. they're not held accountable for Mm. and they don't Mm. they don't actually take action that 
creates the changes that people are hoping for. Yeah. So, um, what, yeah, they, oh, they've sorry. had enough of it. People have had enough of it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Accountability is one of the key things that, I, yeah. want, that, I'm, that yeah. I personally want to go after. Mm-hmm. I know the Canberra Progressives do, is we want to hold the government to account. Mm-hmm. We want more transparency. We want to provide scrutiny. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's what, what's, what's fundamentally missing because the um, the opposition parties, they're, uh, as, as Peter said, they're, they're, they're focusing on, their, on staying in, in government. So whether it's... Even, even if they're in opposition, they want to keep their opposition. They're fighting for their ideology. They're not fighting for the community. And so they're not held to account. Like I see policies come out of the um, Canberra Liberals page that, that would read from a progressive playbook. And what what really concerns me is that um, the... the the fear that they will revert type if if they were elected. We know that they are um, ultra-conservative. We know that they have a very religious view. Now, I, I'm tolerant of all religions, but what I'm not tolerant of is religion in politics, religion in state matters. So church and state. Church and state yeah. need to be kept mm. completely separate. And and I have an issue when all polit- any politician brings their religious views into their decision-making and it clouds the judgment mm. from, from that perspective. We saw it with Tony Abbott. Um, we saw it a bit with John Howard. Um, and I know that um, we, we may possibly see it with Alistair Cole if he was the leader and you know as nice a person as he may be I don't want any um, religion affecting his decision making politics so uh, holding them accountable is what we want to do if the Canberra progressives are elected we don't want to be opposing policy just for the sake of it Um, we want to support the government to do better and to to make better decisions and so by electing us um, at there is a fear, I think, of some people that they're worried about minor parties causing disruption. That's the last thing the Canberra progressives will do. We want to make sure that the government's held to account, keeps its promises and does a better job for people. So I just think that that, that serves in everybody's interest. Mm-hmm. Well, it's what are, oh, sorry. Sorry. Yeah, what are some of the methods that we could use to hold politicians to account? So, I mean, at the moment, we're pretty much stuck with waiting another two to three years and then if the politician that we made a choice for once or maybe not has, I don't know, they might or might not have decided that the whole big swag of decisions that they've made in that time are are with you. I mean, how, how can you hold a politician account to any one decision in this system? It's really hard to. I mean, I, 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 I'll... Put the lens a little bit on the on federal politics at the moment, um, because we've seen time and time again of the federal government making um, reneging on decisions, um, making poor decisions with, um, for example, sports rorts, um, mm. and then we've got Angus Taylor enough said there, and so it's really hard to hold politicians accountable. Well, if um, they're not going to be, I mean, there are mechanisms; they just mm. avoid them. Well, they there's a code. There, there, there's apparently there is some sort of code of conduct, but it's not enforced. In in no, the in the federal, no so there needs to be so federally we need to have a federal ICAC that there's without a doubt and it needs to have teeth and it needs to be retrospective. Um, in the ACT, they have established a, a, a commission, independent commission against corruption, but it, it hasn't it, it hasn't been. Um, they Funded. don't have fit for purpose uh, uh, location building. Uh, they haven't got enough staff. As of March this year, there were forty different matters um, complaints that had been made to this, and 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 they haven't been addressed. So um, while the ACT government um, says yes, we've ticked that box. We've got it. We've got this um, corruption, corruption um, commission. It's not doing what it's supposed to. So that would be a, um, 
in between elections, having having that body set up and actually uh, independently acting on behalf, um, to investigate any, any um, complaints, that would be the first way to do it. Um, but until then, we, we've, we just have to rely on the elections. And what's, what we hope is that ACT voters can realise that all the promises that are being made by the major parties, they're promises. The, the 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 proof's in the pudding and we need to um, look if you look back and see what promises aren't kept mm. that's what you need to be looking for is the past you know the past record not what they're promising now mm. but what we want to do is we want to get in there and we want to make th- make sure that they do those mm. things and we would like to be the ones to hold them account. Mm. Well, as you said, it's been 20 years without any effective opposition or real challenge to the agenda. So yeah. it's also, do you think people get complacent? They get so used to the status quo that they oh, think this is how it's yeah. going to be. Look, it's always going to be like this. Yes, look at the rise in minor parties because people have had enough. They mm. don't like it. But I was canvassing opinions from people why we've been doing this series about just their thoughts. And a lot of people... We want to stick with what's familiar. They don't like it, yeah, but they don't feel human. safe making a change. No. So how do you how do you encourage the community to look well, at that? Well, you, you just have to get to know them. I mean, uncertainty. So, again, in my career as a real estate agent, mm-hmm. um, I've dealt with uncertainty. That's actually my job. My job was to help people in the decision process from uncertainty to certainty. Mm-hmm. Um, human beings will will resist it with every fibre of their being. The devil you know is not a saying for nothing. Uh, so it, it does get to other people's tipping points. And I suppose, you know, what Beth's saying is pointing out, look, um, and one of the things, one of our little taglines is if, if you vote the same, you get the same. So, uh, yes, kind of like you, you don't want to, you're worried about what, what, else there might be what the alternative is but by the same token then you have to take responsibility for the fact that you did nothing to change it when you had the opportunity yeah but what we'd like to also educate voters on as well is by voting for uh, minor parties like the canberra progressives the ch- there won't be a considerable change we no. don't have enough members we we've don't got have a seven radical agenda <laughs> but we've only got seven candidates across three electorates we've got uh yerabi Kurrajong, and marambiji covered and even if all of us get elected we don't have enough to form the government so we'd have have to have a sharing situation but even if a few of us get in um there won't be change because we would like to see um a Labor government re-elected, but with the Canberra progressives holding them to account. Mm. So that's what so we're aiming for. So there'd be good for. changes. It good would be changes. good changes. So the, the people of the ACT will still get the ACT government, the, the Labor government, um, so there won't be fundamental changes there. But what there will be is people sitting sitting there poking, prodding, mm. pushing and advocating. Mm-hmm. To holding them sure, to account. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So it's not going to make government look different and their, and their lives won't drastically change. But the little gripes that, that so many people I've spoken to have about there not being enough transparency, they're not being enough community engagement, mm. they're stale, they're arrogant, they're complacent. You know, they're, they're the words we're getting mm. straight from people in the community. Mm. We will try and fix that by making sure that they have to do better mm. because they don't they, they don't have just the free mm. reign to do. Well, the other thing is is that, you know, we had the third way, which was the Greens. Mm. And again, if we go back to this, the idea of purpose mm. versus self, our own sort of individual kind of, um, ideas or, or what we're seeing and what we're hearing people saying uh, is that the Greens got the power, now they're in the tent. 
they they have fear of loss. So they could lose that power. They could lose that ministerial authority. They could lose that place at the table. So we don't feel that they have kept up their role as agitators and as opposition and divergent and diverse voices. There are lots of things that we agree with on with the Greens, but we just feel that they have become a toothless tiger because they have been given this minority seat in the table. And again, now, we're, now they're focused on losing that seat at the table as opposed to standing up fearlessly fighting for their constituents and that's what we see our job as so what beth is saying is is that you know look right uh, the liberal come liberals put in a, a, a great policy again ethics evidence the the community's been involved we're all for that we we want to see that process the best policy for the majority of canberrans and same thing if it's a labor um, policy if it's a greens policy do you know the ACT is the only state or territory that currently has no independent sitting representative? So not a minor party, not an independent. I think that goes back ten or fifteen years. Um, you know, so uh, strangely enough, we're considered progressive and a bit lefty as a city. We're the most um, educated. We've got the the actual highest rate of of uh, income per capita, uh, which makes some of our social issues an absolute personal shame to me. The fact that I live in this smart, rich city and homelessness is growing at such an appalling rate. Women are retiring into poverty over 55. Uh, tsunami is the word I keep using because I've heard it described that way. So this is the thing about the progressives. You've now got the Greens have now, are they old enough, they're hungry enough for power and status quo that they're prepared to make deals and then have, you know, sort of do the minimum out of their five promises they made um, to hold the Labor government to account, only two have been fulfilled. And one of the most disappointing, the pokies, we were thoroughly disappointed about that. I mean, if the Greens can't get that sorted because of the vested interests working through the Labor Party with the clubs and, you know, the long-term association with union funding coming through union clubs and union funding going to the Labor Party, you know, then that's an epic fail. So you talked about perhaps if you could get one Canberra Progressives candidate, you could actually hold a balance of power Absolutely. in the Assembly. Yeah. So that's, a, that's all it would take. That's is all one, it would take. One person. Just yep. one of us. And that, would, and that would mean that we can um, actually set the agenda because if, if the government has to deal with us and, and, and mm, mm. make policy through mm. us. And we're not a single issue party. Mm. We're not a single personality party. You know, we, we don't have a personal agenda. Every time we actually would would vote or act on behalf of our constituency, we, we have a membership that we have to actually um, engage with apart from our own community. So we're a very, very safe pair of hands to be putting, um, you know, agitation in. Because as Bethan says, there's nothing wild or radical or crazy or, or you know, we, we don't have policies where we're going to hold people to ransom because, you know, our stated aim is, is justice, fairness, equality, access, equity. So those are the things that we're going to be looking at, not these kind of, you know, one issue sort of um, uh, things like... Well, you know, previous parties in the past, whether it's trains or cars or guns or farmers or whatever, <laughs> you know, we're not going to try and, and wrench mm. our one issue mm. by wedging 
the main parties. We're actually going to, you know, look at those party policies, negotiate with them, go back to our membership and then come with the, the best solution for the whole population. So workable partnerships that allow you to press for change. Oh, look, right? absolutely, because we're all about reason and logic and evidence um, and engagement. We can't get away from it. It's who we are. Yeah, so it's all about sort of the process, I guess. And you mentioned going back to your membership and, and consulting. What, what's the process for doing that? How, how have you done that? You mentioned participatory democracy before. Yeah, look, I suppose because the, the progressives don't actually have a sitting member anywhere. So we, we haven't got a process locked in for actually dealing with legislation on the table. <laughs> Not on the table, but with the policies that we formed, we, we sent them out to our membership. And if anybody... A comment. It, it's more if anybody has any disagreement agreements with what we've proposed that they can come forward yeah. and it can be discussed. So yeah, it's a so consensus it's more on a, model. an objection sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. we wouldn't speak, we wouldn't, um, like for example, I wouldn't come up with a new idea and say this is Canberra Progressive Policy, it would have to go through mm. the membership. So anything that I, if I advocate for something, it's it's me as a member that what I will do personally yeah. um, rather than a, a party policy. And it's less about permission or, you know, people having a, 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 a an ability, a member having an ability to actually affect policy. It's actually more about that, okay, so instead of, uh, you know, let's think about, uh, like, giving me permission, give me ideas. Oh, there might be something that the membership comes up with that is worthwhile considering. But at the end of the day, you know, the authority to vote on that legislation is, is and the conscious choice and conscience decision is made by that member that you elect. So we have the freedom, a bit like the Liberal Party, to actually go outside what the membership consensus might be, because if that's what our constituents are telling us, and they're the people that have elected us, then obviously, you know, we have those two competing responsibilities, our electorate, but also what's for the best, you know, what's good for Canberra. But oftentimes we'll find what's best for our electorate is what's good for Canberra. And we keep hearing North, South, East, West, the same themes are coming up. I was on the North Canberra Community Council um, sort of panel, uh, candidates panel the other night. Beth's been talking to, you know, the people of Gungahlin. It's the same things. It's lack of transparency. It's feeling like they're not heard. It's decisions like, you know, the call-in powers on the Dixon Common Ground development. Mm -hmm. Now, the government doesn't know how to engage anymore. It's lost its ability to create good community engagement. It just gave up. It just decided, too bad, mm -hmm. we're calling it in. So, you know, that really doesn't engender trust. And I've certainly heard it in mm -hmm. inner South, inner North. It's the same themes. And is it because when that happens, you know, the constituents get a little bit complacent around needing to have consultation, right? Yeah. It becomes, okay, they're just going to do what they want to do anyway, regardless of what we say, regardless of how we push back. So we'll just roll over. Well, do you know, one of the most interesting things, having heard mm. Rachel Stephen-Smith mm. queried on this, and I mean, you know, Rachel Stephen-Smith is a very mm. cluey person. She's got a master's in planning. Mm. Uh, and what was really interesting, and I know I kind of felt like she didn't even hear herself say it, mm. It wasn't so much about the process, it was the expectations. Um, so what happened was what people thought was going to happen didn't happen. And really it was taking the time and I've heard this word a bit and I'm going to use it. What I've heard from a lot of people is this sort of lack of respect. It's this imposed um, superiority uh, experience, authority, I know better than you, just do it my way, just trust me. And that 
actually, look, that's great if it all turns out the way I expected it to, and I do trust you. But when it doesn't, I never trust you again. So it wasn't so much about the process because we're never going to get everyone to agree. You know, it's it, people are complex. These decisions are complex. Government is complex. It's not easy. And I don't doubt that a lot of people are doing in some ways the best they can. But it's this attitude of getting um, people's permission and setting expectations with them, not setting expectations for them. So what happened was the people thought they would come and somehow there would be this magic wand that would give everybody everything they asked for. That's never going to happen. So the government actually didn't kind of put the time and the effort in at the beginning. And this process just unraveled and it became a stalemate and they're getting pressure on them to build these high needs social houses and they're getting pressure on them to not and so in the end they you know just had to use this call-in power and so we've got uh we like the idea of citizens assemblies um, we definitely like the idea of creating a more um holistic participative framework because the act government you know it has your say on some things but not others it has sort of closed shop community consultation on some things but not others there's no one process that we can all see that we can all see how we can participate and that we can all participate. It's sort of this piecemeal idea. And so that's what, in, you know, actually ends up with the distrust. Because people can't see what it is that they can do and how that affects the end result or not affects the end result. And you have to have, as leaders, you've actually got to have the gumption to say not everyone's going to get what they want We've listened to you. We've weighed them up. Some voices are more important than others. And my role, our role as leader, is to make hard decisions. And some of us, some of you aren't going to like us, but that's okay because what we produce from that decision has a, you know, a long-standing legacy of benefit for the majority. And that's, you know, what they don't seem to be able to come to grips with because they've been in for too long and doing it, you know, all these putting up bushfires. Mm. It's always a crisis that they're dealing with. So mm. we'd really like them to sort of stop and and kind of roll things back, you know, maybe go back to some basic principles when it's it comes to It's a good analogy with the bushfires because we've got the literal fallout still going on. As we know, we had a, a lady on the show about a month ago called uh, Malena Jafali, and she wrote a wonderful book called Malakuta Time oh, wow. about losing her home in Malakuta and yeah. just that journey. And she was sharing just the other day that she was down the South Coast doing a book tour and she witnessed one of the people who had been burnt out, a burnt out farmer, receive a pod to live in for his family. And this is now like eight and a half months after Gosh. the fires, after he lost his home. Yeah. And that came from community fundraising that didn't come yeah. through government support. Yeah. The federal government's really let mm-hmm. the South Coast and other mm-hmm. areas down. And you're, you're from the South Coast yourself, from, from Brownlee, right? Yeah, I grew up in Brownlee. And, um, mm. yeah, it, it, it's it's so disappointing. And what's mm. made it even worse is with now having COVID, it's, mm. it's every, all the victims mm. of the bushfire have just been forgotten. And um, we need to get back to fo- focusing mm. on, on the people who have lost their homes. Mm. But, the, um, you know, the federal government and the New South Wales government, they, they just haven't done enough. It's ridiculous that all this time later people are still living in caravans and pods and, and mm. wherever they can find. Mm. And one of the things that came for me personally out of interviewing bushfire victims was becoming um, very passionate about supporting their struggle and I've stayed in touch with a lot of them and continue to try and connect them to resources and they're still doing 
donations of clothing and food and basic necessities on the south coast for people like yeah. that's still where they're at still. we're talking about people that are still in tents that don't have storage to keep food away from rats mm. that it's not good enough keep dry in the rain yeah. it's and, not good enough and, and we're going into another season now we, yep. we just officially started the new bushfire well, season exactly and you just wonder you know you think about all that money all that energy all that outpouring and so i'm i'm actually doing a diploma of in community services and one of the things that I'm really passionate about and kind of have now got sort of, you know, um, specific language around, it was things I knew but I didn't know what it was called, it's um, the notion of building community through the assets that you already have. Now, assets is just another word for all of the amazing kind of human strengths Mm -hmm. and um, skills and expertise Mm -hmm. that we have. And so this is one of the big disconnects that I see with government Mm -hmm is failing to actually um, identify and uh, bring into the tent to sit beside them all the incredible resources, skills, strengths, talents, energy that we already have in our community. There's always this sort of notion I feel from government, which is to find these outside experts, bring these people in, you know, help us sort of tell our own story or solve our own problems. And, you know, there's a fundamental kind of assumption about power there, which is that there are these elected few who are somehow superior, who are somehow more knowledgeable, who are somehow more have more and I think that that's a real miss I really think that you know when you actually give the community that respect by saying hey you know just as much as we do um, that you can empower them and harness resources so that everybody's on the same page at the beginning see what happens with the bushfires and those sorts of crisis situations is we have this outpouring the government does not have a mechanism to let the community in the door. They have to sort of say, oh, wait, wait, you know, like, okay, you keep collecting money, you keep doling out food, you keep doling out, you know, clothes, we'll get back to you. And then they have to go and create governance structures. I'd like to know where the $2 billion is that, that they were promised. Yeah. Um, you know, well, it's been has, announced has, several times. Yeah. Has, has that even um, been delivered? No, no. One I, no one I keep in contact with has said they've received any funding at all other than community. And what about yeah. all the money that the Red Cross got? I know that they have to make sure that they're, they're investigating all of the claims. But why, you know, it, it's just too slow. There's got to be better mechanisms and processes yeah. in place to yeah. get these people the money that but they need. But it's that same thing. It's that sort of separating. Um, and, and look at COVID. You know, we had the fires. We thought we'd never have anything so horrendous as that. And then COVID comes along. We're going to, as a community, going to really have to deal with this kind of crisis management. And again, as privileged white people in the West, I mean, I remember being a little kid and hearing about terrible cyclones and flooding in Bangladesh and always sort of thinking, you know, it's in these countries that, you know, they're, they're just not organised. If if only they were as organised as us. And then when, you know, as a, this sort of seemingly in control, organised democracy gets hit with these um, bushfires and COVID, and you do see the thinness, you see those structures like knocked out it's exposed from how underneath. weak yeah. and 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 <coughs> yeah it's, it's exposed how weak the leadership is um like when when the bushfires were sort of at, at, at its peak scott morrison went to hawaii you know and then it, then he um hosted the um cricketers over at at his, you know his kirribilli house mm-hmm. and it's exposed it really has exposed that the the, the gap between the wealthy and and everybody else and then COVID went on further to expose that 
wealthy people and, and, and all these other leaders, they're really useless. Um, the real workers and the real people we depend on in the community are the frontline workers, are the people working in the shops, you know, making sure... Some of the, the lowest doing paid their people. And, 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 childcare, and the childcare workers and mm. all of those people, they're the ones we depend on. And, and all these other rich people, they've done, really done very little to to help get, get us through these difficult times. Well, I think that's where Canberra has to be a little bit careful. Um, you know, we were talking before about, you know, it's a rich city, it's a clever city, and there's a sort of complacency. And that's because to a certain extent, I think Canberrans pat themselves on the back about being clever and liberal and, you know, being the best sort of people because we support, um, you know, same-sex marriage, um, we support climate change, we do things that other governments aren't seen to do um, with as much sort of gusto and support. But by the same token, you know, we're very lucky. We Just but for the grace of Gaia, Allah, Ganesh, whoever it is, Canberra has managed to avoid... Um, you know, having this large community uh, transmission of COVID. So we're pretty lucky now. We're not having our our economy crashing around our ears. Yeah, we're not in central Melbourne. Yes, Mm. but we have to ask ourselves, so what if it comes here? You know, what is in place? What is the government doing? And one of the things that Beth and I are both passionate about is the fact that women, talking about the front line, if you talk about frontline industries dealing with COVID and even with the fires, um, you know, there's a lot of women. It's it's feminised industries. It's nursing. It's um, pathology. It's it's carers. Community it's services. Aged care, community services. Um, or it's young people, you know, people in those more casualised <laughs> jobs. And one of the things that I haven't really seen seen from this government or even the the opposition is what's the plan for women now one of the things i'm most disappointed about personally is that um the office for women was moved out of andrew barr's directorate it is no longer a chief ministerial priority now even scott morrison you know to give him due whatever it is he's owed the office of women is in the prime minister's office it is not in the chief minister's office i want to know why and as 50.3% of the population, evidence base says it should be there. Um, you know, I want to see, we, we hurriedly had a women's um, budget kind of uh, review or, sorry, it's a, a women's budget statement by Minister Berry. Now, they promised when they did announced with great fanfare their women's action plan from 2011 to uh, 2015, mm-hmm. sorry, 2011 to 2016 and then 2016 to 2026 something like that. So there was so there's been two women's action plans. A number of those points have not even started. Um, and they promised that they would make an annual accounting about where women were at because we know that when policy actually goes through a gendered lens, when the policy is looked at as how it will affect women's lives, how women lead their lives and whether those tax cuts will get to women, whether those services will get to women, it's one of the most effective forms of uh reducing that gender gap is to actually make sure the policy works actively to minimise disadvantage, not give women extra, not give them money or riches or special privileges, but just simply identify those lived experiences where women's disadvantage stops them from getting a benefit of a policy. Now, that was supposed to be reported on annually. We've only had two in the last four years. Again, 
nobody's, people stop watching, there's no election coming up, nobody's asking questions, um, or if the people asking questions are being ignored by the press, it just goes under the radar. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that is so morally disappointing to me. I think that's a moral choice mm-hmm. when you make a promise, um, particularly to a group like women in our community who are just rapidly falling through the cracks, and then you seem quite okay with the brazenness Mm -hmm. of only fulfilling that promise at the last minute in a lead up to an election because when when organizations like atcos and ywca and women's health Mm -hmm. matters start to ask tricky questions you need to be able to come Mm -hmm. up with a document and say here's what i Mm -hmm. but you know it's about the the letter of the law Mm -hmm. but not the spirit of the law and i think with covid it has un covered all of these gaps and cracks Mm -hmm. and I don't hear any conversation about how we're going to take those lessons Mm -hmm. and put them into practice to protect people. I don't know if you had a chance to meet the new CEO of Atcos, Dr Emma Campbell. We did have a fabulous uh, briefing with Dr Emma Campbell. we had her on the show not that long ago and she's um, a wonderful advocate for what you're talking about. Absolutely and Craig Wallace as well Um, and I've been very lucky to have Craig on a couple of forums Mm -hmm. that I've been involved with Mm -hmm. for a affordable housing and the um, North Canberra Community Council. And, you know, that man just works so hard, like he's up at nine o'clock at night still kind of, you know, sending questions into the, the leaders. And look, this is the thing. We have the solutions. This is this asset-based community development idea. We have at costs. They are some of the smartest, most dedicated people that you'll ever meet. They've got 12 fantastic election platforms. You know, we don't have to have some extra kind of expensive policy mill. It's all there. Or expensive think tanks. No, we have all of the solutions within our own brilliant community. Canberra has some of the most fantastic, you know, people I've ever met in my life. Incredible diverse experience and skills and knowledge and expertise and wisdom. It's all here. So, look, on, on that, I want to bring you back to the uh, the previous sort of topic that you were on and, and, and what about the earth? I mean, yeah. so where John Michael Greer sort of explains there's, there's sort of three economies, each one stacked on top of the other. So you've got the natural economy, you could call it the, the non-human world, and that is all of nature. And, of course, if you don't have that, there's no way that you can have the next one, which is sort of what humans can do with all of that. So that's sort of... That's the physical economy, stuff that you can touch and mm. things that you need to eat and that sort of stuff. And mm. that was where all your caring work, of course, comes in. And the, yeah, the people who work in that sphere really don't get paid very much. But on top of that is how we organise ourselves and how we distribute all of that wealth and all of the all of the imaginary stuff that we hold in, in common as, a, as a, an idea, like the economy, like politics, like rules and all of that. Now, of course, all of these things are dependent on the one below them being mm. stable. Mm. Now, at the moment, we've got this climate crisis. You can't deny it. Uh, no, well, maybe we you can. No, no. Uh, <laughs> no. We don't deny it. No, but, it's um, there. But I was thinking of uh, our, our government who seems to be bent yeah. on making it as bad as it could be. Yes. Um, but so, you know, you're saying you're evidence-based and it's basic physics. This is not really rocket science at all. There's record droughts and fires and you look at the bloody... The Western USA is going up, and I don't know. Maybe we'll try and top them again next this year. Yeah. <laughs> um, but this freaky, catastrophic, widespread things. Do you think it's a climate emergency? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Great. Now, on top of that, the climate is breaking down, and what we're all dependent on is that 
that base economy of mm. nature, yep. it's freaking out. It's becoming unstable. Mother Earth. Yeah, yep, that's right. So how, how are we going to react when that shakes hard enough that all of our human systems on top of that in that top layer start mm. falling apart? Mm. How can we get these assets in the community to be prepared, to be coherent and actually functional enough to take over By when, when the economic people. system... <laughs> but when the political system falls over, the economic system... I know, but we've... This is coming. <laughs> it is coming, and, and, and it's going to come even faster if we keep Liberal governments in power. Um, you mean federally. Conservative co- Sorry, governments? Sorry, big L, yeah. Conservative, <laughs> far-right governments in not power. Not true Liberal, but... Yeah, yeah, sorry, not small L Liberal. So what, what we've, this is what Peter and myself and the rest of the um, progressives um, Australia-wide are fighting for is we've got to get in and change the status quo. We've got to get in and stop it before it re- release, uh, we reach that stage where it's almost no return. Mm. Um, so Canberra does an okay, pretty good job. You know, we've got 100%, they say 100% renewable energy, but the assets, only a few of them are in Canberra. So I think that there could be a bit of a change there where we bring our renewable assets in, more into Canberra. Um, but what we've got to do is put pre- pressure on the federal government and um, hopefully the the state and territory leaders can do that as well. Um, I would love to one day get into federal government if I had the opportunity so I can have an impact on that as well. So um, what what we need to do is just keep fighting. A lot of people give up. A lot of people think, oh, it's just too hard. Um, We can't do anything about it. We feel powerless. But this is the thing. Every single person's voice has power. If we use them collectively, we can can fight back and do something about this. The only way we can do it legally... um, is at the polls. We, that's, that's the only way we, we can get any change. So by people, if people think about this, think about, instead of just thinking about the elections that's in front of them, think about the people who are standing for election, what they represent, what their values are. If we get more values-based people into politics, people who um, have, you know, you don't need to have an education. You just need to have common sense. We can see the world is, is, is going to crap before our eyes with the bushfires with the droughts with crazy weather patterns so the evidence is all there and um i don't know what is going on with this um the conspiracy theories about this covid and about the bushfires and etc but 5g 5g (laughs) but i think that's um a response to fear it's their response to fear so what we on the in uh, in progressive politics what we need to do is help address their fears instead of ignoring them and say they're just nutty and writing them off. We've got to look at what what they're upset about and what they're scared of and help address that. And we've got to bring the right and the left in together because climate change affects everyone. It doesn't matter how rich you are. Climate change is going to affect you. That's right. There'll be nothing. I, I'm One of my biggest concerns is about the future. So I'm terrified that there'll be food shortages in Australia because there'll be water shortages. A lot of our agricultural land is owned by foreign companies. Uh, water rights are sold to foreign companies. Um, well, the Antesian po- Basin has no water coming into it because it's all being stored well, well, in dams right. for Yeah, exactly, right. exactly. Yeah. So these are the long-term problems that, that we need to start addressing now. Mm-hmm. And, and and it's amazing because it's almost mm-hmm. like the analogy of a, you can see a slow train coming towards you and you're standing in the middle of the track mm-hmm. and you know it's going to decimate you, mm-hmm. but you just stand there mm-hmm. watching it happen. We've got to stop now. Like We've got to do something so now. You've got to unhypnotise. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And well, 
exactly. look, I think that the sort of big elephant in the room with climate change and it, um, or climate emergency and climate crisis is what Beth's talking about is is the influence, you know, these sort of conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. Well, they go like wildfire these days because mm-hmm. we have social media because Facebook is basically bigger than a mm-hmm. small country and it's unchecked. Uh, it doesn't have to go to the UN um, or anywhere else to kind of justify itself and it gets to pick and choose what it thinks a community standard is. Um, you know, breastfeeding women versus conspiracy theorists mm-hmm. and, and you know, alt-right sort of people who are happy to advocate violence. So one of the things that we can do as progressives in our kind of local way, mm-hmm. and it's a big theme for us, is to absolutely expose and reject vested interests. Mm-hmm. So Facebook is a vested interest. I mean, in climate emergency, the, the sort of discussion around that and the lack of the undermining of science and the undermining of experts well we can put that to people you know that's that's um, down to Rupert Murdoch I mean he has an agenda where he has 80% of our front pages he owns the media in Australia and so he can actually for his own kind of strange diabolical sociopathic little reasons he doesn't seem to have rhyme nor reason he supports one thing here and another thing there but he is a very serious clearly a a vested interest and then there's that sort of you know pyramid of vested interests through the fossil fuel people through the gas fracking people through the the big um agriculture people through the big farmer people through the big petroleum people so you know in canberra as progressives what we can do politically and it's a huge sort of platform for us is you know we think that there's too much vested interest um despite all the great green moves that that our government has made there's still too many vested interests in, say, people supporting something like a light rail because there's a a, a smooth lobbyist and a lot of infrastructure and a, a huge contract was there really proper consultation? You know, was that, was the vested interest kind of 80% of the, the equation and 20% um, was, was the community? So that's the bit where, uh, in terms of the climate crisis we can actually change that attitude and get people to really start using their power, as Beth says, because every single one of us has a voice as a letter writer, as a poster on on social media, as an emailer, as a texter. As as someone talking to their friends. That's right, a barbecue. People on community radio. That's right, (laughs) but but people have to believe, and I think this is the other thing that Mm. Beth touched on, people have to believe that something matters that mm. something can make a difference that it's worth all that that effort because mm. it's not easy mm. and i think that that's so important for these diverse got nothing to lose no fear of loss voices like the progressives to show the way and start chip chipping away at that vested We've interest got to bring trust back into yeah. government as well and that's something that's really upset me over the years i've always had an interest in in government from a machinery mm. of government perspective not from mm. the party perspective and it's something i've always revered in a way mm. and over over the um, last sort of um, 10, 20 years, the trust in politicians and government. I mean, I think politicians are rated worse than used car sales. Worse than real estate agents, that's yeah, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> People just don't trust them anymore. And that, I, 
I, I think I'm a little bit um, hopeful and naive to think that if I were to get elected, mm. that I could change that view of politicians because I don't want to be a politician. I want to be somebody who makes positive change mm. and um, and uses my values to, to, to mm. make decisions. So I would like to see uh, politics change for the better and that politicians can be more trusted. So, But that is up to the... It, it's a double-edged sword because it's up to the political parties that are putting people forward. Um, and to pick more diversity, but it's also up to the public. They've got to do their research. So one thing I've, I'm really, um, I'm, I've been trying to get the message out is about the political process, the campaigning process. Now, um, as as of I think it was two weeks ago, we we're allowed to put our core flutes, or for the for the people out there, it's the signs with our faces and names on it alongside the roads. We started letterbox dropping. We go to supermarket community centres and hang around and talk to people. Now I've I've seen on social media a lot of people get really frustrated, especially with the core flutes because they're just they're litter the sides There's of the roads. So many There's of too them. Too many of them. You see, you know, five or six of them for one person all dotted along, and um, they are they're an eyesore. And, and in in where, near where I live, and not environmentally. No, safe. they're on the road. They're off. They're yeah. laying on the road. They're and, broken and sticks. I've seen them near schools. Like yeah. I'm really worried about. There's too kids many of them, and I, I completely understand the frustration with them. Um, and I've been trying to sort of explain to people from a candidate's perspective why we need to have them out there. Now I think there needs to be a balance. I I would love to see that there are rules around how many. Absolutely. Each, like for example, if Capped. each candidate was only allowed to have 50 core flutes and they had to put them all around their electorate. Obviously, there'd be more for Labor and Liberal, but still, each person had the same same number. That I would like to see something like that. That they had to be made of recyclable material. That um, they they had to be pegged onto the stakes properly, etc. But we need to get our we need to get our names out there. And I'm trying to sort of say to people, hey, this is the only way for parties like the progressives and for candidates like me to get our names and our voices out there. Because if we don't do that, most people don't go looking for us. And the press really... Oh, the media don't go near us. No. Again, vested (laughs) interests. Um, We we just basically haven't really had... We've had two instances where the press have actually written about the progressives where we weren't just in a long list of other, you know, here's the, li- the, here's the list of the other people. But, like, there, there's <laughs> one, I won't say who it is, but there's one online publication and it does a free publication that you can get outside shopping centres as well. But they're always be- bemoaning that there's oh, only the Liberals and Labor, there's just nobody else you can vote for. And, and I, I'm so frustrated every time I read it because mm. this person could be educating people about these yeah. fabulous yeah. minor parties and the candidates candidates that are standing that want to make a change so are they are they looking for just a headline Mm -hmm. and for an echo chamber of sympathy Mm -hmm. or are they going to be proactive and say here's a bunch of other people Mm -hmm. you can consider let me tell you more about them so you can make an informed decision when you go to the ballot box on the 17th of October and it is their responsibility I mean you know one of the kind of bits of coverage we got was about our quirky kind of you know election merch not about our policies, mm-hmm. but what... <laughs> it's the fashion. Well, and, you you know, what makes you different? Well, actually, it's our policies, but, yeah, look, we'll show you our coasters because they're pretty cute as well. So, you know, there is a responsibility, um, but, again, it goes back to vested interests. All right, so if we go and give some exposure to these people and then cheese off this person and they get in and, you know, and Andrew Barr made that famous announcement that as far as he was concerned, the press was dead. Remember that? Mm-hmm. I'm not talking to you guys anymore, he said. 
I don't. Well, there's I, arrogance in a nutshell. Absolutely. Right? I don't want to talk to you. I'm going to make my own press channel. Um, funnily enough, he doesn't seem to be mentioning that again. Um, I've seen him interviewed plenty of times now, and he seems to be. Oh, I'd love best to subscribe buds. to Andrew Barr. <laughs> <laughs> but what with back. the core flutes? I mean. Oh, has anyone thought of, you know, setting up a, a Facebook page with a core flute art competition? Well, you... look, I did actually. I saw a Homer Simpson one the yeah. other day, which I'd, I'd vote one Homer Simpson. <laughs> well, but, but, you know, the thing is, is that we kind of get in trouble if we go onto community notice boards. People get very upset that a politician is, you know, there's no one, no one else is, Andrew Barr's not chatting to people. Alistair Coe's not chatting to people. Shane Rattenbury's not I know. chatting to people. I put a post on a community notice board and I didn't mention the party. I just said, look, think of it from a candidate's perspective. This is why we're doing it. And it got amazing feedback from from people engaging but it got taken down straight away because even though I didn't say I said my name because I posted it I posted it from my private page not my political one but it, it politics has just become a dirty word people don't like it and the, the frustrating thing, it's once every four years. Mm. All we ask of people is mm. just to open your minds mm. that one time every four years, mm. ha- have, take, have, have a look at the flies in your letterbox mm. before you throw them in the bin mm. and just, ha- you know, understand who you, who you might be voting for this election. And you, you know, I have power. a special bin fire for certain flies. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, ours are very pretty mm. and they're purple. And and look, the thing mm. is, is that, you know, I, I, it's, it, mm. I can't kind of, start giving people lectures about being political because I wasn't engaged for years either. I really, I really do get it. I am actually um, really quite gratified that, you know, people have understood about this political um, activity comes in all different forms. You know, you've got mums, uh, uh, like, for climate change. You've got schools for climate change. Um, You've got people coming out to support Black Lives Matter um, and, and, you know, justice here in Australia. Uh, And so people are actually acting more and more politically. And so this is why it's so important to have people like Beth and I who are just regular and relatable people because the more people can sort of find um, connections with people who will act for them, be decision makers for them, the more likely they are to engage. Yeah, And this is what we talked about in the very beginning. You know, it's people have been um, disillusioned with politics. Mm. They struggled to find consensus. And they're also feeling like that what they're going to do isn't going to make a difference. So, you know, it's like in America, they always say, you know, don't vote for the person you want, vote for the person you want to get out. Or, you know, you have to make a vote for the person that's going to have the best chance of getting out who you don't want in power. The protest But not for the maybe the party that shares your values or the independent that shares your values. Yeah, well, I suppose that's because it's that two-horse race idea. Mm -hmm. Um, And that for a long time was considered to be the bed, you know, that stability Mm -hmm. and, and that sort of certainty. But people have seen that 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 doesn't really produce great solutions. You just get rusted on And as I referred, as I sort of touched on earlier, there are a lot of really great minor parties this election and um, while, the, while the Canberra progressives um, are not make, doing any preference preferences, we no. won't be posting how to vote. What we are strongly urging voters is to, to consider voting for major, uh, sorry, minor parties and independents um, before you put uh, before the majors. So put the Canberra progressives first, <laughs> but then put other minor parties. You choose which ones you want. We're not going to tell you which one to vote for because um, I don't know if a lot of people know. Once a party reaches four um, percent of the vote, 
they get I think it's about eight dollars sixty two per vote, and they the, and the that, major parties reap in hundreds mm, and thousands. And that of figure dollars. has gone up. So yeah, that figure started out Australia. at two dollars or three dollars a vote, and this is you know the incumbents vote. They work with each other. They're like, well, we want to stay here. We don't want anyone else getting in the door. So we'll just give ourselves seven hundred thousand dollars. We want to see the minor election. parties and the independents getting some of this money because this will help them mm. to um, better um, campaign in the next mm. election. But it has to reach that threshold. So it is actually a limit to democracy. So it means that I would probably have to self-fund to the tune of $10,000 and I don't get a cent back until I've reached. And, you know, 4%, 4% of the vote is significant. Mm. That's a lot of bake sales. Exactly. It is a lot of bake sales. Exactly. And, and I just want to remind our listeners that you both have full-time jobs and more yep. yes. and families yes. and are doing and study. study. <laughs> and, you know, we just mentioned there was a candidate on, on the corner, street corner down downstairs when we came in, um, who's doing that on taxpayers' time. Yes. You know, yeah. Yes. This is a very an, um, uneven playing oh, field. Look, so. absolutely. And again, it's that fear of loss. You know, we do, we don't have any fear of loss. We're going to give it a go. Um, really, at the end of the day, uh, we do have other lives, and that is, it's our blessing and our curse. So it's why we would be great at the decision making table, um, but it also is why you know we have to work ten times as hard to get there. And I think we get back to that same thing in the very beginning. We talked about how do we get a community to come together, form consensus and bypass their own biases. Mm. And this is where I see you've you've taken it right back to its roots because it's not about you personally getting in power. It's about the collective change that we all want to see happen. Oh, so, look, look, absolutely. Yeah. And I don't think, and, and I know I bang on about this, but I don't think that it's um, any kind of coincidence, particularly for Bethany and I, that, you know, as women, you know, whether it's our natural inclination from our personality or our conditioning, we really care about the future. We care about the future generations. We care about our community and the connections. And that really, at the end of the day, is what it's all about. It's all about the fact that if we're going to come out of some of these terrible crises um, intact as a functional community, then people like Beth and I need to be at the table. Mm. Well, thank you. It's been so wonderful to have you both here. Thank you. Um, thank if you, for we, you know, you, you said you had so many po- over seventy policies or something that you had. Yeah. And I've got eleven pages of notes that I <laughs> barely touched. So, well, they're all on the website, yeah. and we do absolutely yeah. encourage questions yeah. and comments and stop and us come on and the find street. us on Facebook. We've yeah. all got Facebook candidate pages, yeah. and there's a Canberra Progressives page. You can find info on the um, Canberra Progressives website. Yeah. We've got um, CapAd, and we've also Smart Vote. Mm-hmm. And you've got the best colour as far as I'm concerned. You've got Thank you. deep royal purple. Yes. yes. So look for the royal purple. It's the colour of chocolate too. Yes. 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 <laughs> There's a famous chocolate company in Canada called Purdy's, which is that colour. Oh, right. It's golden purple. Well, so it's Cadbury's. Yeah. And, yeah, Cadbury's. And yes. Yeah. Yes. Lovely. Oh, thank you for having us. Yeah, really it's been an absolute grateful. pleasure. Thank you. No, well, real welcome. So that was Bethany Williams, candidate for Yerraby, and Peter Swarbrick, candidate for Karajung from the Canberra Progressives, joining us as part of our ACT 2020 election series. Next week, we're going to be hosting Peter Johnson from the Climate Change Justice Party. So don't forget to tune in. And I'll leave Scotty for the announcement if you'd like to hear more behind the lines and 2XX, what you can do? Well, you can go to 2XXFM.org.au and you can click the support button. You can there subscribe, which is an excellent way of showing your support for 2XX. You can volunteer. You can give us your money because we do need it. It is expensive to run all this stuff. Uh, So do that and then you will hear more independent voices. You'll hear more 
in-depth talking about things that you will not get anywhere else. I thank you.